92, if you'll join me there, if you have not yet, Psalm 92, we're told at the beginning of Psalm 92 that this particularly is a psalm that was a song for the Sabbath day. So uh, specifically here, we are given indication that this psalm, Psalm 92, was to be utilized on the Sabbath day by the children of Israel as they would assemble together. And remember, the Sabbath day was something as a covenant that God gave specifically, the Bible tells us, uh, to the nation of Israel. God told them in six days uh, that they were to work, and on the seventh they were, to, they, they were to rest, they were to take a Sabbath, and it was in the same way a pattern of exactly what God did, six days of creation. Um, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And this was a specific covenant that God gave under the Mosaic law to the nation of Israel. It's also what set them aside. And of course, it also was a picture ultimately of the Sabbath rest spiritually that God would give to us in Christ. Hebrews 4 speaks to that very reality, Colossians 2 as well, that this was just a, another type and a shadow and a picture that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, that in him, we rest from our works. We rest from laboring to be right with God. And Jesus gives us, as Matthew 11 speaks about, that rest for our soul. But the Sabbath for the Jewish people particularly understand that was their day of worship. It was a day of rest physically, but it was also a day they were to disconnect from doing other things. And they were just to kind of spend time letting their soul rest from all the other things that was preoccupied in it all week long and just to spend time worshiping God as the synagogue life came about. It was the time when they would assemble together on the Sabbath and they would spend time reading the scriptures and hearing a teaching and praying and worshiping God together. So this particular psalm was to be incorporated in their Sabbath day. It was to be used as a song to be sung by them on their day of worship. And the psalm begins by telling us in a declaration, it is good, God says, to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of 10 strings on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound for you, Lord, he says, have made me glad through your work and I will triumph in the works of your hands. So you can tell as the psalm begins, it starts out really with a call to worship or a call to express praise unto the Lord. The very first verse of our psalm simply makes a declaration that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. I remember a number of years ago, particularly addressing that very statement from this psalm, I believe in one of our Thanksgiving Eve services and just kind of utilizing that as a way to prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving. And what a great statement that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. That if you spend time, if I give any effort to in any form or fashion, giving thanksgiving unto the Lord, praising him, expressing thankfulness to him, and there are many ways we can do it. He mentions some of them even in the next verses that that always is going to be a good thing, profitable, beneficial, the idea is. And there are certainly many different ways. As I said, we did a whole teaching on that very, I mean, it, it's good to give thanks to the Lord because it's, it's good in the sense that it's, it's good and right to do before the Lord. He's worthy of our thanks. 
He's, there's many reasons that we have to be able to be thankful to him. Certainly, we can always find reasons for challenges or difficulties in this and that, but there are always plenty of reasons. Write that song, you know, count your blessings, you know, name them off one by one. And there are always reasons that we can express some degree of thanksgiving to the Lord. And it's good to do that because it seems that as humanity, we struggle with just at times having an ungrateful spirit being discontent, not being perhaps as thankful and grateful as we should. I mean, how many times do we see in the word of God instruction, command, guidance regarding rejoicing in the Lord, giving thanks unto the Lord? Remember, Jesus told that story of the 10 lepers that he cleansed in the New Testament, and Jesus, it seems, was astonished when one of them came back. Remember, leprosy was an incurable death sentence. And Jesus took away an incurable death sentence. He did something that was humanly impossible in the lives of 10 people. And it says one of the 10 came back to him to just express gratitude and thankfulness. And Jesus was so shocked and astonished that only one of the 10 keys, where's the other nine? I mean, it was, it was almost as if he was just astonished. This is absolutely amazing. Only one of the 10 of you? opted to come back and take the time to just say thank you and to express a degree of appreciation. And perhaps I wonder sometimes if that's almost a sad indication of perhaps only about 10% of the time we do well in regards to really thanking the Lord as often as we should. So it's a good thing when we give thanks to the Lord because he's worthy of it. And I'll tell you another reason it's good to give thanks to the Lord because it's good for us. You cannot tell me that if you begin your day or at any part in your day, you just stop and you know, just start thanking the Lord for the few things that can come to your mind that it doesn't just do something good for you. I know it does something good for me. It does good stuff for my head. It does good stuff for my heart, for my attitude. And it just puts me in a different frame of mind. And, and it just helps me sometimes get out of my head some of the negative junk that shouldn't be in there. And it, and it helps. What does it do? It helps kind of like diminish the tendencies that we have towards just ingratitude and frustration and right discontentment and dissatisfaction that when we start expressing gratitude and thanks to the Lord, it's not only good because it's right to do, but it's good for us. And God knows that. It's helpful for us. It's beneficial to us whenever we give thanks to the Lord. And he tells us one of the very clear ways that we can do that. He says it's to sing praises to your name Almost high. And then he refers to in verse three again, how we can do that by utilizing both musical instruments or non-using musical instruments. He mentions being able to, you know, use harmonious sound by utilizing stringed instruments to lift praise to the Lord. But the idea there again is is through song, through singing, through music. It's one of the greatest ways we can make expressions of thanks unto the Lord. So whether that's coming into the house of God and doing exactly what we're doing this evening and expressing through, you know, music and songs, thanksgiving and praise unto the Lord, that's a good thing because it's right. We should be doing that. He's worthy of that, right? He's deserving of that. It's good for us. You know, I, I can honestly say there's never been a time where I've come to the house of God and I've sang unto the Lord and expressed praise in the Lord and went home and said, that was a bad idea. What did I do that for? That's never happened to me anyway. It's always been the opposite. Like, I'm glad I did that instead of like all the other multitude of things we could do, right? And I'll tell you, there's something very powerful about that. And I know I've alluded to this before, but it's so critical. I'll bring, 
I find for myself, it's very helpful for me too, whether I'm in my car driving or just in a mood or whatever. There's something very powerful. Just turn on a worship song and you just start singing to the Lord and praising the Lord. You don't need to be assembled with the people of God to have a worship service. You could just start worshiping the Lord and singing thanksgiving unto the Lord. And it does something very good between us and God. It's something good for us to sing praises unto him. And notice he says, verse 2, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and then your faithfulness every night. The idea is starting the day doing such and concluding the day by doing the same. He says, every morning being able to declare your loving kindness. The idea is that beginning every day, being able to thank the Lord and declare unto the Lord, I thank you that you are a loving and a kind God. I thank you that... As much as it almost sounds strange for us to say it out loud, I remember Pastor Chuck used to say it, you know, pastor's conferences again and again as he grew older and older in the, in the grace of God. He used to say, I, you know, I get up every day and I almost get excited because I can't wait to see how God's going to bless me that day. It almost sounds like a foreign thing to say to him. Like, what do you mean? But, he, but the understanding is because God is loving and kind, Chuck used to say, I would kind of enter into the day like, I wonder what God's going to do nice for me today. Because he's a God of loving kindness, right? What kind thing is he going to do? What way is he going to show me his love? Lord, thank you that you love me despite what's going on right now or how I feel or what the circumstances are. Lord, thank you that you are a loving God, that you're kind, that you're in control of my life. And, and just to begin the day, declaring that unto the Lord in the morning. And then he says, as, as the day closes out, to, to declare his faithfulness every night. Lord, thank you that you were faithful to get me through another day. <laughs> Lord, thank you that you were faithful to get me through this today or through that. Lord, thank you. You, you were there. You helped me. You upheld me, you supported me, you could tell you, I could tell you intervened in that moment or that situation. Lord, you are faithful, and I thank you for being faithful to me through the day as you conclude your day. And again, he says we can do this harmoniously through music or just declaring it to the Lord, speaking to him. He says, verse 4, you've made me glad through your work. Now, it's not my own work. You've made me glad and I will triumph in the works of your hands. Notice God wants us to be triumphant. God wants us to be overcomers. We're going to go through difficulties in life. Jesus said specifically in the gospel of John, he says there, in this world, you will have tribulation. The idea is trials, difficulties, challenges. How does he know that? Because it's a fallen world, right? That's a part of the curse, that it would be difficult from you know working by the sweat of our brow to sickness, struggles, death, difficulties, hardships, that in this world, he says, you're going to have tribulation. It's a part of life. But he says, but take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so he tells us throughout the word of God that when he's a part of our life, Romans 8 says that we'll be more than conquerors through him who loved us. The idea is that, yes, we're going to face conflicts and challenges and difficulties, but the Bible says that through Christ and his love for us and his involvement in our life, we can overcome those things. We don't have to be overcome by them. We're going to face them, but we don't have to be overcome by them. We can overcome through them. We can triumph and have victory. And this is something that brings great gladness to our heart because as the Lord works in us, 
That's what brings a degree of gladness to our spirit. I mean, I love that verse four even says, he says, Lord, you've made me glad. He didn't say I found a way to make myself glad. He said, Lord, you supernaturally made me glad as you worked in my life and you helped me triumph by the work that you did. It was your hand, Lord. I was stuck in a pit or I was, wasn't gonna make it, <laughs> but your hand got involved and, and I saw your work and, and it made me glad to know that you loved me enough to get involved and help me in that way. He says, verse five, oh Lord, how great are your works. And just think of the many things that we could consider the works of God from creation to his salvation, the many works that God's done generally for all of us. And think of the many times God's worked in your life specifically. The times where you've seen and you know that God did a work, God came through in a situation. He says, wow, Lord, how great are your works and your thoughts, he says, Lord, are very deep. So, Lord, your works are great and your thoughts, the idea is God is the things that God is thinking about in his plans, his purposes, the things on the mind of God. He says, Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Now, Isaiah 50, 55 tells us, right, that as the heavens are high above the earth, so high, God says, are my thoughts above your thoughts. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And he says, if you can measure from how high it is there all the way up to the heavens, he says, that's how much higher my thoughts are than yours. Now the, now the, the, the book of Psalms here tells us what? Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Wow, now we're getting a bigger gap. <laughs> so his thoughts are higher than the heavens are on the earth. And now he says, Lord, when your thoughts, they're deep. They're deep. Now, to me, that's an incredible reminder of how, you know, just incredibly infinite and amazing God is and the ideas he has in his mind, the things he's doing, the plans, the purposes he has, the ways of God, they so far supersede anything my little mind is ever gonna wrap my hand around because <laughs> God's thoughts are deep. And sometimes we love delving understanding, right? The ways of God and, 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 and it's almost like God is so deep. You could spend the rest of your life trying to understand what God's doing and God's going, do you know how deep my thoughts are? <laughs> I thought, I'm God. I'm a supernatural, all-knowing God. You're a finite, frail human being with a, I mean, these brains are incredible. Don't get me wrong. And God's revealed a whole lot in his word. And he reveals things by his spirit. But God says, do you know how deep my thoughts are? You know, some theologians spend their whole life, we were just speaking about this recently, you know, trying to get really deep, you know, into the things of God. And God's going, you, you think you're just scratching the surface. You realize we're going to spend all of eternity, Ephesians 2 tells us, where God is going to continue to keep showing us, it says, the incomparable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Part of eternity is constant revelation and constant learning. As we're in glorified bodies, we don't have these weak, limited brains, and we have full disclosure, full revelation. We're going to just see more and more and understand more and more. Jesus will be our Bible teacher expounding the word. The word will be expounding the word. We're going to be learning and seeing things continuously, delving deeper and deeper into the greatness of who God is and how his thoughts. So you know, be encouraged tonight. You may be thinking, I just, man, I just don't know how to think my way out of this. And God has got thoughts so deep right now. He's doing things that you don't even possibly able to consider. 
There are deep things that God has in his mind, plans and purposes, ways that he can work, or maybe that he is working that we're not even possible to be able to grab hold of, but to know that his thoughts are deep. And the Bible tells us, Psalm 139, that his thoughts towards us are more than the sands of the sea. That's a lot. That means God's thinking about you in deep ways and got plans and purposes in mind for you and I, things that he's doing. In verse six, he says, regarding the kind of, calloused heart or the unconverted man he says a senseless man does not know nor does a fool understand this well how do you define a fool well the book of psalms twice already has told us the fool says in his heart what no god (laughs) so he says the person who rejects the existence of god or doesn't want to acknowledge the authority of god won't allow the involvement of god in their life becomes then not only a fool, but they become a senseless man. They become someone who may think they're super smart, right? Doesn't God say in the, in the book of Romans, he says, you know, professing to be wise, they became fools because they think that they know so much intellectually and they don't realize our minds can't wrap ultimately around the greatness, the depths of who God is. So he says, God, a senseless man, the fool, they don't understand this. They don't understand your works, and your deep thoughts and, and who you are because their rejection of you. Verse 7, he says, And the wicked spring up, however, like grass, when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed. That is, their ultimate destiny is to be ruined forever. Now, he's going to draw a contrast. Verse 7 here, he talks about the wicked. When he gets over to verse 12, he's going to talk about the righteous in contrast. Now, notice, he says regarding the wicked, that they can at times experience a degree of initial or immediate prosperity. But notice he relates the wicked to the springing up of grass. He's going to say the righteous, in contrast, they're, they're sturdy like cedars of Lebanon. They're fruitful like palm trees producing dates there in the ancient Middle Eastern culture. But he says the wicked, they may spring up quick. They, they may have some prosperity, some initial flourishing but like grass that can grow real quick but grass is incredibly fragile right what do we do with grass we mow it down we get rid of it it has no lasting purpose i don't know anybody unless they want to be fined by the city that just lets their grass just keep growing and growing right grass is, is a frail thing it's so temporary and this is the idea he says yes the wicked those who disobey god or reject god they may quickly flourish they may have some success in even their iniquity, how could they be succeeding and doing it wrong? They, they may, to a degree, have that. But he says the overlooked thing is that even in all they're doing, their ultimate destiny is to be ruined eternally because they've rejected God. And what does Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world here on earth but forfeits their own soul? Now, in contrast to the temporary wicked flourishing that thinks that they're prospering in some way in their error of rejecting God. He says, but Lord, but you, you're on high forevermore. Lord, you're the God who's been around and will be around forevermore. For behold, verse nine, he says, notice your enemies. So apparently there are ways people can be an enemy of God. Your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies shall perish. The idea again is, is experience ultimate ruin. And all the workers of iniquity or sin shall be scattered. God God is able to disrupt what they're doing. The psalmist then says, as a word of optimism regarding what he saw God doing in his life, verse 10, he says, but my horn 
you have exalted like a wild ox. Now, uh, the horn was always a reference to the power, the strength of an animal. It was representative symbolically of that. So he's saying, Lord, you have strengthened me. You've given me power and lifted me up like a wild ox. And again, an ox was known to just be a very stubborn, strong animal. It would pull in a direction. It would go in a direction. It was very hard to stop the direction of an ox. It just That was just its temperament. Like a strong, wild ox, it just kept plowing forward. That was what it was known for. And I like what the psalmist said, Lord, you have given me power. You have strengthened me to be like a wild ox. There's something to be said for God by his spirit just giving you staying power, right? Just the strength to just grind out life day by day and like an ox to just keep plodding forward and plodding forward and putting your hand to the plow and not looking back and like a wild ox by the power of God's strength in your life, just pulling forward, plowing forward, forgetting what's behind, reaching forward towards what's ahead. And then he says as well, another blessing of those who know the Lord. He says, I've been anointed with fresh oil. And again, the idea there is like with fresh anointing with oil, they would anoint kings and priests And oil was often symbolic of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I like what he says here too. Lord, I wasn't just one time anointed with the oil of your spirit. He says, Lord, I've been anointed with fresh oil. The idea is continuous experiences with the Holy Spirit. Continuous anointings and enablements from the Spirit. You know, I I love that, that every day we can pray Ephesians chapter 5. Lord, fill me afresh with your spirit. Lord, I'm going to serve again. Lord, I'm going to speak again. I'm going to do something for you again. Lord, would you just anoint my head with fresh oil? I don't want to trust in yesterday's anointing. I don't ever want to be guilty of thinking, oh, well, I had an experience with the Lord, and then just we try and do it all by just experience. One of the greatest mistakes that we make so often is we get too dependent upon past spiritual experiences, or maybe God you know, works through our life in a particular way, a ministry we do or whatever, and we start to become reliant upon, well, oh, I have experience. I've been doing this for three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, and we're trying to do it out of natural talent or experience rather than having a genuine enablement from the Spirit of God because something totally different happens when there's an anointing of the Spirit upon what we're doing. And how wonderful to be able to know that it is available to us and we should be asking, Lord, would you just anoint me with fresh oil? You know, whenever I teach the Lord, Lord, would you just anoint me with fresh oil? I don't want the oil of the last sermon. Lord, would you anoint me with fresh oil for this Bible study, that your spirit would work through me, that I would not interfere with what you're trying to do. And how wonderful to have that great assurance. And I think it's a great statement to refer to at times, to pray out as we journey in our lives. He says, verse 11, and my eye also has seen my desire on my enemies, the things that threaten me. My ears hear the desire of the wicked who rise up against me. So again, he spoke of God's enemies back in verse nine. And of course, when God has enemies, if we're walking with God, guess what? There are gonna be enemies that come against our lives as well, whether literal human enemies or just things that become enemies of our soul, sin struggles and weaknesses, oppositions from the world, the devil himself. We're going to have enemies But verse 12, here's now that contrast from the one who lives wickedly to the one who lives righteously in right relationship with God. He says, the righteous 
shall flourish like a palm tree. So notice the, the wicked, he says, they spring up. The idea is just real quick, but then like grass, they get mowed down pretty quick too. But he says the righteous, they flourish. That is a continuous, ongoing process over time. And he says, the one who lives in right relationship with God will flourish like a palm tree. That spoke of fruitfulness, the palm trees there that had dates on them. It wasn't just a tree that was you know, attractive or that provided shade. That speaks of the righteous flourishing in the sense that your life will be fruitful. God will make your life fruitful as you live in right relationship with him. And he shall also, metaphor, grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The cedars in Lebanon were massive trees. That spoke of sturdiness, stability. And is it not true that when you live in right relationship with God, God brings fruitfulness into your life and God brings a degree of stability to your life? Your life becomes stable relationally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Boy, it is not, is it a gift to have stability in your life? I mean, think about before you knew the Lord. Look all around the world, how much people struggle maritally, relationships, mentally, emotionally, with just constant instability all over. I mean, just life is just constantly unstable. And when the Lord comes into your life, not that life becomes perfect, but to have a degree of stability, he, he makes stableness come into your life like a cedar of Lebanon. God begins to stabilize your life. And what a blessing. He says, verse 13, and those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit even unto old age. Again, notice time and age chronologically. God says that doesn't diminish fruitfulness. Even in old age, people can continue to be fruitful for the Lord, serving him and being useful for his purposes. They shall be fresh. Again, that's much better than getting stale and old and grumpy in your old age. <laughs> Right? And with a natural tendency, oh, that grumpy old man, that grumpy old woman. But not those who are planted in the house of the Lord. He says those who are planted in the house of the Lord, even in their old age, they can still be bearing fruit. They can remain fresh and flourishing in their lives. And why, verse 13? Because they're planted in the house of the Lord, flourishing in the courts of God. There's the key there. Planting yourself in the house of the Lord. And when something's planted, what does it mean? It, it's taken root. It's staying put. It's there consistently, regularly when something's planted, right? It, it's the, it doesn't say this is something that applies to those who periodically visit the house of the Lord. And that is the habit of some. They periodically visit the house of the Lord. Or others sometimes can never find the ability, unfortunately, to plant themselves in a particular house of the Lord. They are in this house of the Lord, and then something happens or whatever, or they didn't like that, or the music didn't, and so then they go try this house of the Lord. And they're constantly uprooting and replanting and uprooting and replanting and uprooting and replanting, and then why am I not flourishing spiritually? Maybe you need to plant yourself in the house of the Lord, in a congregation where you genuinely spiritually feel called to, where you can put down some roots 
and receive from the ministry of the sap of God's spirit and bear fruit and let God use you among the relationships and the church family he's called you to be a part of. Again, this is such a key to spiritual fruitfulness, planting ourselves in the house of the Lord, having ourselves consistently rooted somewhere. And I tell you, I look back over my Christian life, and I don't say this pastorally, I look back over my Christian life from the day that I got saved and, and I, I recognize that one of the key things that brought so much spiritual growth and fruitfulness to my Christian life, and I didn't even know what I was doing, was when there was opportunities to be together with God's people and in the house of the Lord, I just kept myself rooted in that. And it was amazing the work the Spirit of God did in my life. As a young man, you know, just born again Christian, a month after I graduated high school, and I realized that in hindsight, looking back, no, that's, Lord, that's so much of what it was. Right there, what your word says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish, they'll be fruitful, wonderful things begin to happen. You know, I can't encourage you enough, plant yourself in the house of the Lord. Don't be a periodic visitor to the house of the Lord. Plant yourself consistently. Be in the house of God, make it a priority, get rooted in the house of the Lord, and then watch what God's spirit begins to do through his ministry. As it happens continually, regularly, consistently, week by week in the house of the Lord. He says, verse 15, that we might declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, my stability, my foundation, and there is no unrighteousness in him. We don't have to worry if God's gonna be shady. He's a rock, he's stable, and that's why our lives become stable like cedars of Lebanon because he's a rock foundation. Jesus tells us, build your life on that rock, hear and obey my teachings, and we don't ever have to worry if God will do us wrong. He's always right. Psalm 93 is a psalm, really, that just short psalm tells us to always remember that the Lord is in control. We don't know the backdrop. Could have been during a time of when the Children of Israel were under the Babylonian captivity and they were being ruled by, you know, others. We're not certain, but it's a reminder. He says, notice, the Lord reigns. That's the concept of the psalm. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed, that is robed, and he's girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Now, certainly there are all types of forms of human government that have happened all throughout human history, right? That we, we see dictatorships, we see monarchies, we see democracies. From the beginning of time, mankind, one of our biggest problems is humanity does not know how to govern themselves, but many a times, human forms of government and empires and powers, they come to pass, right? God uses human government. It does have a plan and a purpose. The Bible speaks to that reality to help man, in a sense, subdue evil and wickedness from flourishing to a degree where we would ultimately destroy ourselves. But the one thing that is true is no matter what form of government or what empire or what ruler reign has ever existed, have you ever noticed that none of them are sticking around forever? Think of the centuries of the pharaohs of the Egyptian empire. Where are the pharaohs? Think of the rule of the Roman empire. Where are the Caesars now? They're not reigning anymore. Their throne came to an end. 
Think of all the human empires and rulerships and ultimately they don't reign forever. You know who reigns forever? God does. And we can always recognize that. That Lord, no matter who's on the throne humanly, no matter who's governing or ruling in this nation or our nation or ever, we can always know no matter how chaotic, how crazy, how frustrating, right? It can get, the Lord's on the throne still. <laughs> Ultimately, we know somehow God is on the ultimate throne and he's still gonna coordinate everything according to his purposes. And we can rest in that reality because his strength isn't something given to him by the people who put him there or elected him there. It says there in our verses, he has girded himself with strength. That is, it's a self-imposed strength. Nobody gave God his rulership. Nobody gives God his strength. It's his. And nobody can take it away. The psalmist says here, Lord, even as the world has been firmly established and it can't be moved, your throne is established from old and from everlasting. Again, the idea there is when we think about the world, the world seems so fixed, right? I mean, our ball of dirt has been kind of floating in its solar system for a good period of time. And typically we'd say, you know, the, the world's the, geographically, I'm talking about the ball of dirt itself, it's, it's pretty fixed and established, right? And, and he says, if you think that's stable, he says, God's throne is something that has been established from everlasting before the world was ever created. And the idea there is just to encourage our hearts, God has always been on the throne. He will, no matter what happens, he will always remain on the throne. And one day Jesus is gonna come back and literally is again gonna physically on this earth for a thousand years in the kingdom age, he's gonna reign and rule and take back the throne that man has tried to push him off of. And what a wonderful encouragement it is for us to know that. He says, verse three, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The Lord, or should the floods lift up their waves, but the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Now, as he talks about the floods here, he could be doing two things. You know, Isaiah 17 and other places, there are times when the nations of the world are referred to as the, the seas, so this could be kind of an indication of the, you know, the floods ideas, the nations of the world, they rise up, they, this empire tries to do this, this nation tries to do that, they raise their voices, you know, they, they come forward with their powerful waves of doing this, their wave of doing that, and he says, and ultimately, Lord, you ultimately rule over everything, and so you can subdue any nation and stop any nation, and God has raised up and put down many nations in human history, and he always has the prerogative to do that. So in one sense, the psalmist could be referring to things in that way. When we think of what floods are as well, what are floods just, you know, generally from a natural sense, floods are powerful moving bodies of water that what? Have the capacity to bring about tremendous change and tremendous damage and upheaval, right? A tsunami or a flood can do a lot of damage. It can be a very threatening, dangerous thing. The strength of our oceans or our seas, their waves being able to do the things that they can do. But yet he says, despite the power of even mighty floods, the Lord on high is stronger than many waters and stronger than the waves of the sea. His power is even greater than those things. And ultimately, Jesus manifests that literally. We see in the New Testament, Mark chapter four, remember when they would go out at times on the Sea of Galilee, numerous times in Jesus' ministry and the, the winds would kick up and the waves would kick up and it says they'd be struggling against the oars and they'd be in the middle of the storm. And it was like the waves were overwhelming them and literally they felt like they were going to not make it. 
And sometimes when we go through the storms of life and it seems like the wind's blowing against us and it seems like the waves are crashing in and we truly feel like the disciples sometimes, Lord, where are you? What's going on? I feel like I'm perishing here. Lord, I am stuck in this storm and I don't know how to get out. And when Jesus comes walking on the water and as he comes walking out on the water, he literally speaks to the wind, he speaks to the waves and instantly by his power, he has power over creation and those things that seemed so overwhelming. The things that were over their head were under his feet because he rules over all those things, even the greatest storms in our life. On the other time, remember Jesus was sleeping in the boat and same thing, well, Lord, don't you care? We're perishing. He's sleeping while they're trying to get through a storm. They, they wake him up and he says, oh, ye of little faith. And he rebukes the wind and the sea and the, the storm instantly stops. He shows that he has power over the strongest waves and storms that exist. And then they say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And again, just that reminder that when we go through the storms of life or when the floods of pressures and problems and storms come barreling into our life and some tsunami of a thing, an event, an experience happens that we can know that the Lord is still stronger than all those things and that he's with us. And you know, the disciples only ever had to do one thing is just stay on board with Jesus, right? He said, let us cross over the other side, then the storm happened. The only thing they had to do truly, even in the storm, was just not abandon ship. Because the Lord was on board with them. And you know what? When you go through the storms of life, even if you go through the most chaotic flood stage and the most horrible storm, my biggest encouragement, just stay on board with Jesus because he's in the boat. He'll get you to the other side. Just stay on board with Jesus and know that he can calm the storm in his way and in his time. He says, verse five, Lord, your testimonies are very sure and holiness adorns your house O Lord, forever. So again, men may do this. Empires may do that. Men who reign try and change this. But he says, Lord, the one thing that's sure in a world that's constantly changing, where there's constant lies and instability and deception and power grabs, he says, Lord, your testimonies. That's the one sure thing. And that word testimonies is a reference to the word of God, the truths of God's word. Psalm 119, many times that term will be used again and again to describe the word of God. So he says, what's the one thing that's sure in life? The word of God. Not what's happening circumstantially, not what the voices of the world are saying, not what's coming across media, not what's happening in our heads. The word of God. That's what's sure. That's what brings our stability. That's what we rest in. That's the one unchanging and the one reliable thing. Psalm 94, let's look through it. He says, O Lord, to whom vengeance belongs. So notice this is a psalm asking God to bring vengeance, which means apparently that's something God should do at times. And keep in mind, vengeance doesn't mean revenge the way we think of it. Vengeance is just punishment for crime. It's when a legitimate crime has happened and a judge renders a good judgment and says that crime legitimately deserves punishment, whether it's X amount of years in jail or a death sentence. It's, it's just punishment for a legitimate wrongdoing. That's what vengeance is, not revenge. And the Bible tells us that God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. I'm a good judge. I know what I'm doing. Our job is to ask God to bring vengeance, not take revenge ourselves. That's the hard part, right? 
because sometimes we really want to take care of it. But he says, Lord, to you, vengeance belongs. I don't want to rob from you what is your prerogative and your role. It's your job to do that as the judge. Oh, God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Lord, demonstrate that you're taking care of this. Rise up, he calls him, oh, judge of the earth. So notice, God's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice, and he's the judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? I'm sure you've never said that in your whole American life, right? Lord, how long? Lord, I know you're going to deal with this eventually, but Lord, how long are you going to get let wicked people that do evil, vile, cruel things among humanity? How long? Lord, you're the judge of the earth. You're not like a human judge. I know you're going to judge, but God, how long? When are you going to judge, God? Again, we struggle with that. And we struggle with God's patience. (laughs) We struggle with the fact of trying to reconcile because God's thoughts are deep and God's doing things sometimes that we don't understand. And sometimes it's just this forbearance waiting to reach another soul, to reach a few more souls. And he says, but Lord, please render punishment to the proud. Lord, deal with those who have rebelled and done wicked. They utter speech, he says, and speak insolent things. Now, I know this doesn't sound like the media at all, but just just bear with me here. They utter speech. They speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people. The idea is they seek to do what brings destruction to those who try and live righteously, to those who want to live for God or honor God. They seek to break down what the people of God are trying to live out. And they afflict your heritage, your children. They bring affliction and problems and destruction to the people of God. They slay the widow, the stranger, and murder the fathers. Now, the widow, the stranger, and the fatherless in the Old Testament were all those who were vulnerable, defenseless, those who many times needed the help of others because they were in a difficult, vulnerable place. And notice, what do wicked people do? They take advantage of those who are vulnerable, those who are defenseless, those who aren't able to defend themselves. They take advantage of, they manipulate. Notice, he says, they slay them, they murder them. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. The idea is there's no accountability for what we're doing, this God thing you speak about, they have no concern of the judgment of God and their cruelty. Understand, now he starts to rebuke those doing such, verse 8. Understand, you, he says, senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall we not hear? He says, the very God who made the ear, do you think he can't hear what you're saying? Do you really think that? He says, he who formed your eye, do you think he doesn't see the things that you're doing on the earth to people as if somehow God's not aware when people do what's wrong? He who, verse 10, instructs the nations, shall he not correct? And he who teaches man knowledge, he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. Now, interesting, he who instructs, verse 10, the nations and teaches man knowledge. The idea there is there's a general sense of revelation from God that has always been in existence, even just the conscience of man. And he says there are certain things that despite any, let's say, religion, 
uh, moral code, no matter what empire, there are just certain things in the conscience of any human being who's been created that have always been in the depth of our conscience wrong. You don't murder someone. You don't lie. You don't cheat on your spouse, right? I mean, there are just certain things that God has instructed with knowledge in the conscience of a human being that you don't even need the word of God to tell you are wrong. So God says, I'm the one who's been instructing the nations and teaching man knowledge. Do you think one day I'm not gonna correct and hold people accountable for that stuff? When they know in their conscience, even without the word of God, that those things are wrong. He says the thoughts of a man, they're futile, they're so vain. Interesting, God's thoughts are so deep. What does the Bible say of our thoughts? We're so smart as mankind, right? (laughs) Futile. What a comparison, that's humbling. Verse 12, however, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. That's you and me tonight. Those who God's instructing, teaching out of his law, out of his word. God says, blessed is the one who's receiving teaching and instruction from the word of God. To be blessed is, oh, how happy that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off or abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. So notice the blessings of those who are hearing the word of God, letting God's word teach them and instruct them. He says, the one who's doing such, it will give verse 13, you and I, rest from the days of adversity. Again, why? Because as we live in days of adversity and we're going, man, this world has fallen apart, God. It's getting so crazy and wicked and corrupt. There's a rest for the soul, for the person who's hearing the word of God, because we know the end of the story. We understand where it's all culminating. We realize that one day God will make all things right. He will deal with evil and wrongdoing and he will bring about proper vengeance. And and that's a rest for our soul so we don't have to be constantly agitated and irritated and upset and angry. We can know one day God's, God's gonna take care of everything and I can just rest in that. And it also brings rest from adversity in the sense that blessed is the man whom you instruct and teach because if I wasn't receiving instruction from God's word, do you know what else I would be doing? creating a lot of adversity in my own personal life. And simply because you let the word of God teach you and I let the word of God teach me, we avoid a lot of adversity that we would have otherwise caused in our lives. Is that not true? How much more rest and peace and protection because we don't create a lot of self-inflicted trials that people who don't know God and God's word sadly bring upon themselves. They bring adversity and pain and problems because they're listening to the ways of the world and not being led by the ways of God's word. How wonderful to have that rest from the adversity of this life because God's word's teaching us. Verse 16, he says, and who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Lord, who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? I can't fight them off. Verse 17, here's his confidence. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have settled in silence. I don't know what I would have done. If I say my foot slips, Lord, I feel like I'm slipping here. I'm, Lord, I don't feel like I can keep my footing. 
Your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. How wonderful. Lord, I feel like I'm slipping. I just, I just can't keep my footing. But he says, Lord, thank goodness that when I fall, you always hold me up. That you're there to catch me. You're there to put me back on my feet again. And then I love verse 19. Can we not relate to this? Verse 19, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, the psalmist says, your comforts delight my soul. In the multitude of my anxieties within me. Oh, come on, it couldn't be. How could God's people have struggles with depression, anxiety, worries, fears? Get, you know, this is the inspiration of the Spirit of God. The psalmist says, in the multitude, doesn't say one, in the multitude of my anxieties sometimes I find within me. He says, Lord, it's always ultimately your comforts that just help my soul to, to settle back down again. It, it's you, Lord, supernaturally that comforts and brings delight back to my agitated soul lord you comfort my soul in the midst of my anxieties what a blessed treasure again of an experience and relationship for those of us who know god shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you now boy verse 20 you could almost be prone to preach a sermon on the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law. Wow. I'll let God's word speak for itself there. Devising evil by law. Can that possibly have fellowship with God? It's a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. They gather together against the life of the righteous, those who do such things. Notice they oppose the righteous as they devise evil by law. They condemn innocent blood. The idea is those who are innocent, they put to death. We see that happening continuously by law with abortion year after year, right? The innocent being put to death, innocent blood being shed, sadly, tragically, by law. Very sad. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. The idea is that ultimately he will come back around and he will deal with all these things that seem like they're being overlooked and not addressed and not properly being punished that are transpiring. Now, before we conclude, if I can just draw your attention back to verse 21, they gather together against the life of the righteous and they condemn innocent blood. You know what that speaks of most specifically? It speaks prophetically of Jesus. Because truly, there is only one innocent human being who has ever lived. That's Jesus. And so in a sense, prophetically, the psalmist, by the leading of the Spirit, they gathered together against the life of the righteous and they condemned Jesus and they shed his blood, the only innocent one. But aren't you really glad that even in the midst of, let's say this, the most heinous crime humanity ever committed. We think a lot of things are so heinous that are going on. In the most heinous crime humanity ever committed, even in that, God was reigning and he was providing eternal salvation even through all of that for our souls. Wow, that's pretty deep. Are God's thoughts pretty deep? Aren't you glad he works in those ways ultimately? and that he's in control no matter what's going on. Let's stand, let's worship our Lord for a few moments before we conclude this evening. Father, thank you for...